0: So today we have a story that we think might make you believe something that right now you do not believe. And to tell that story, I'm joined here in the studio by NPR science reporters Elise Spiegel and Lula Miller. Hey there, guys. Hi. Hello. And do I have this right? So you bought a rat and you brought it to NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C.?
1: We did. Elise bought the rat. I did.
0: And where at NPR did you bring the rat to?
1: We ferreted it into a little kind of edit booth type thing. (laughs) <laughs> Hi, buddy. Type office. What's up? And we invited people into the room, one by one. So can you just describe what we got here? It's a rat. Pinkish ears. Red eyes. Long nose. And sat them down in front of this rat and asked this question. Do you think that the thoughts that you have in your head, okay, the private thoughts that you have in your head, could influence how that rat moves through space? No. No. No.
2: No. No.
3: And it was almost unanimous. No, People did not believe that their personal thoughts would have any effect on the rat at all.
2: Because that would suggest some sort of telepathy, which I don't have.
1: And Ira, maybe that's what you think too.
0: That is what I think. I don't think that people thinking thoughts will affect a rat's behavior.
1: Well, you're wrong.
0: No. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so who's this?
1: this is a man named Bob Rosenthal. He's a research psychologist. And early in his career, he did this thing. He went into his lab late at night and hung signs on all of the rat cages. And some of the signs said that the rat in the cage was incredibly smart. And some of the signs said that the rat in the cage was incredibly dumb, even though neither of those things was true.
4: They were very average rats that you would buy from a research institute that sells rats for a living.
1: So then Bob brings this group of experimenters into his lab and he says, for the next week, some of you are going to get these incredibly smart rats, and some of you are going to get these incredibly stupid rats, and your job is to run your rat through a maze and record how well it does. Can you just pick up the rat? So, Ira, we actually did a very low-fi, unscientific version of this in that little room in NPR. They let you do that? We didn't ask permission.
5: Is that okay to do? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you've probably already guessed where this is going. Yeah, in Bob's real study, the experimenters ran the rats that they had been told were smart. She's sort of an intelligent-looking face. And the rats they'd been told were dumb. Yeah, he seems kind of, you know, lazy. It was not even close.
4: The results were so dramatic.
1: In Bob's real study, the smart rats did almost twice as well as the dumb rats.
0: Wait, even though they were the same?
1: Yeah, even though the smart rats were not smart and the dumb rats were not dumb. They were all just the same average kind of lab rat. It was so shocking, people didn't really believe him.
4: I was having trouble
0: publishing any of this. And so what was going on? Like, like What was actually happening to make the rats do
1: this? So what Bob figured out was that the expectations that the experimenters carried in their heads subtly changed the way that the experimenters touched the rats and that changed the way that the rats behaved. So when the experimenters thought that the rats were really smart they felt more warmly towards the rats and so they touched them more gently.
4: We do know that handling rats and handling them more gently can actually perf- uh, increase the performance of rats
0: and how does this play out when it comes to people how do our expectations of other people work
1: well what you saw in the rats totally holds for people too I talked to Carol Dweck who's a psychologist and researcher at Stanford
4: You may be standing farther away from someone you have lower expectations for, you may not be making as much eye contact, and it's not something you can put your finger on. We're not usually aware of how we are conveying our expectations to other people, but it's
1: there. And it happens in all kinds of areas. Research has shown that a teacher's expectations can raise or lower a student's IQ score, that a mother's expectations influences the drinking behavior of her middle schooler, that military trainers' expectations can literally make a soldier run faster or slower. So my question was, you know, how far does this go? So Carol, clearly these expectation effects exist on a continuum. So for example, if I right. expect that if you know somebody jumps off a building, they will be able to fly, that's not gonna work out so well, right? Mm-hmm. So what does science know about where we should draw the line? Does it have a clear sense of that? No. That line is moving.
4: As we come to understand things that are possible and mechanisms through which A belief affects an outcome, or one person affects another person, that line can move.
0: Well, from WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. Today in our program, we have a kind of hard-to-believe example of what expectations can do to people. This story uh, is from a new radio show and podcast that Elise and Lulu are launching this week. It's called Invisibilia. It's about the invisible forces that shape human behavior, like beliefs and assumptions and emotions, which I know sounds a little abstract, but in execution, I have to say it is anything. But Elise used to work here at our program, Lulu worked at Radiolab, and their new show is sort of halfway between the two. A quick heads up before they launch into this, as you may have noticed, the voices sound a lot alike.
3: They are. Yeah.
0: Yes, I know that is not news to the two of you at all. So uh, stay with us. And Lulu... Let's just jump right in. Where do you want to start?
3: Well, I'll start with a question that I asked the rat scientist, the expectations guy, Bob Rosenthal. Okay. Could my expectations make a blind person who literally has no eyeballs
4: see? (laughs) And No way. Expectations will not make them see.
3: How sure are you about that one?
4: Positive.
3: So... I'm deep in the woods of Southern California with a man named Daniel Kish. You're not raw, though. We've been hiking for hours, climbing over tree stumps and along the edges of a steep ravine. And we're just sitting down in the dirt to take a break. Could we look at your eyes?
2: In terms of them being out? Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, and then Daniel pulls down his lower eyelids. Let me just... And removes his eyes. They're prosthetic, of course, and they clink a little bit as he hands them over to me. That's so cool. Two of the most beautiful hazel blue eyes I've ever seen in the palm of his hand. Can Uh, I hold? Yeah. Okay. Is okay my hand? Mm -hmm. Wow. They're so lifelike. Does it feel odd to not have them in? Yes. Oh, it does? Oh, yes. Okay. Daniel's eyes had to be removed when he was just a toddler because of cancer.
2: retinal blastoma, which is basically eye cancer.
3: And yet he's the one who's led me on this hike, deep into the woods. We get to Forks in the road, and he knows they're there. He leads me across a footbridge that's maybe two and a half feet wide without slowing down.
2: I think we've passed what I was looking for.
3: And over and over, the path takes us right alongside the edge of a cliff. And Daniel gets within inches, but always senses it. So how does he do it? Well, he's got a cane and a hiking stick. But mainly, he clicks.
2: You press the tongue on the roof of the mouth.
3: Is it kind of (laughs) like...
2: You're creating a vacuum.
3: Huh. He clicks with his tongue as a way of understanding where he is in space. This is basically what bats do. Echolocation, the scientists call it. It's like sonar. From the way those clicks bounce off of things in the environment, Daniel gets a sort of sonic representation of what's around him. So here, I can sense trees poking up. Now Daniel just happened to intuitively invent this when he was a toddler. No one taught him or trained him, he just made it up. And since he's been doing it his whole life, he's now so good at it that he can tell all sorts of things about what's in front of him if there's a wall, if the vegetation is dense or sparse.
2: So here's a bench, Yep. garbage bins.
3: Ding, ding, ding. Outhouse. Wow. And not only does this allow him to hike.
2: So we'll go this way.
3: Navigate foreign cities alone, rock climb, horseback ride. But the one that gets all the attention is that he can ride a bicycle.
0: Meet Daniel Kish. He's blind but that doesn't stop him from riding his bike.
3: You may have heard of Daniel Kish before. Daniel Kish is completely blind. He's usually called the Batman.
4: This real-life Batman.
3: Because he is the man who clicks like a bat. His remarkable bat-like abilities. And he has made the media rounds to demonstrate what is usually described as his most amazing, extraordinary, phenomenal, remarkable, nearly superhuman ability of being able to ride a bicycle even though he is blind.
5: As you watch him, remember, he can't see a thing.
3: A narrative that Daniel thinks is all wrong. (laughs) 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 Step right up,
5: step right up. The amazing Daniel Kish will demonstrate one of his greatest tricks to
3: date. (laughs) This is Daniel's buddy, Brian Bushway, who has had to watch his poor friend wheel out the old bicycle so many times for the media that he couldn't help but mock the whole setup when I asked him to do it for me.
5: And then he will proceed to mount himself on a bike and ride.
3: And though Daniel indulged, pulling figure eights and riding beautifully as I ran beside him with my microphone, the two of them made it clear that my amazement was kind of offensive.
5: So step right up, step right up and see the amazing Daniel Kish do something that everybody can, but
3: most people don't. And here's where we get back to expectations. See, Daniel thinks there is nothing amazing about him. He thinks that most blind people who don't have other disabilities could do things like ride bikes.
2: I definitely think that most blind people could move around with fluidity and confidence if that were the expectation.
3: See, he thinks the reason that more blind people don't isn't just because they haven't learned to click. But It is because the expectations that you or I are carrying around in our own heads about what blind people can do are simply way too low.
2: They wouldn't be able to hike. They wouldn't be able to run. They wouldn't be able to engage in manual labor.
3: Daniel, like Bob, thinks those expectations, those private thoughts in our heads, are extremely powerful things. Because over time, they have the ability to change the blind person we are thinking about.
2: Psychology becomes inculcated in the blind person, absorbed and translated into physical reality.
3: And so Daniel thinks if we could all change our expectations of what blind people are capable of, then not only would you see a lot more blind people on bikes, but...
2: More blind people could...
3: In a very real way... See. Yeah, he just said, see.
2: It's actually pretty simple and straightforward.
3: And it turns out neuroscientists are looking into this idea and seeing some pretty shocking results. And we'll get there. But first, to understand what Daniel means, how expectations could give a blind person vision, we need to first see how Daniel himself shot through this force field of low expectations. A story which starts back in 1967, when Daniel was 13 months old and that second eyeball had just been removed. Oh my gosh. This is Daniel's mother, Paulette Kish. And a few days after taking her son home from the hospital, Paulette realized she was facing a really difficult choice.
4: My mom thought that, that I should put him in cotton. Cotton? wrap him in cotton so that he didn't get hurt, so that his, he was so protected. That's, that's really how she felt. See, Daniel was a very rambunctious little guy. He started climbing when he was six months old before he even walked. And that didn't change when he went blind. We had bookshelves he would climb, so I'd have to move everything off the bookshelves
3: because he'd get into them. So Paulette needed to decide, was her mom right? Was it time to start putting some restrictions on him? Or was she going to raise him like a seeing child? Allow him to explore his world with very few restrictions on him for blindness.
4: And Paulette went with option two. She was going to banish her fear. Just put it away. In the beginning, I think that's what I did. I just... Put it away. And so, when two police officers showed up at her door... Two big,
3: huge police officers holding my child. ...having picked up Daniel for climbing the fence into their neighbor's yard... You can't let him do that. He could fall. Paulette felt their same worries... It's very scary. ...but didn't make Daniel stop. I just climbed everything I could find. And when the elementary school called and asked her to make
4: Daniel stop clicking... It's not socially acceptable, is what they would say. Paulette said... Too bad. He needs to know what's around him, and that's how he does it. And so Daniel clicked
3: past people doing double takes on the street, occasionally bumping into things. It is, yep. And then pretty soon, your blind kid is not only scaling trees and fences by himself, but using just his clicks, not even using a cane at that point, he's walking to school by himself, crossing busy roads exploring his way into neighbor's driveways. A
2: friend of the family had an undersized bike, and I started riding alongside this retainer wall until I realized I didn't really need the wall, and I could roll alongside the wall without having to touch the wall. And then, um...
3: Oh, goodness.
2: I just could ride it.
3: You'd have to click way more than usual.
2: Peppering the environment with, uh barrage of clicks
3: but by six years old he could do it ride completely comfortably on the bike <laughs> and when
4: neighbors would pop their heads out the door how can you let him do that
3: with their concerns
4: how can you let him do that
6: how can you let him
4: do,
3: how that? Can you let him do that she'd look at his smiling face <laughs> and think how can i not
1: hey lulu yeah Elise. least Can I cut in with a question? Yeah. Did he ever get hurt? Like, really hurt? Well...
2: I used to have this game, get to the top of our road, and yell, dive bomb! And I would ride insanely fast (laughs) down the road, and everyone would have to scatter. (laughs) Well, one day I did the dive bomb thing, and as I was screaming down this road, bang! I just collided into a metal light pole.
3: Blood everywhere. And this was not the only pole in Daniel's life. On the schoolyard, he ran into a pole and knocked out his front teeth. Teeth. A few years after that, he ran straight into a soccer shed.
2: And it just destroyed my whole mouth.
3: So yeah, he got injured pretty badly. A bunch of times. But the way that Paulette reacted to these injuries Mm -hmm. was that she always let him keep going. I mean, shortly after the bike
1: thing a bicycle appeared under the Christmas tree. And why? like, I am a mother, and I think that if my kid kept showing up with his front teeth knocked out, I would begin to wonder if I had made the right choice.
4: Yeah.
3: Paulette knows it seems extreme, which brings me to the reason she decided to do this, to raise her blind kids so differently from the way that most blind kids are raised. It was my first marriage. It was not a good marriage.
2: My father was an alcoholic and he was abusive.
3: Daniel's biological father, who's now dead, would hit Paulette.
2: Sort of a barroom brawler type.
3: And he was tough with Daniel and Daniel's little brother, taught them to fight.
2: We had to learn to sort of take physical punishment, as it were, and be able to um, dish it back.
3: And Paulette says, This is why she ended up being so hands-off with Daniel.
4: Everything that happens in your life has its effect. Has its effect.
3: She says that after years of feeling so small and powerless in that marriage, when she finally made it out, she vowed never to be ruled by fear again.
4: I mean, there's life, and then there is living your life. There is a difference.
3: And the same would go for Daniel. She refused to let those scary thoughts of what could happen make her keep Daniel too close. But what if Daniel ended up being hit by a car and killed? I asked her, like, what if, what if a
4: car just hits him, just plows him down, you know? But that can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone. There was a group of four kids on the corner up about a block. A car went up the curb and hit them, killed two of them. Yeah, It can happen to anyone.
3: And so... Bikes were bought for Christmas, Yeah. tree climbing was permitted.
4: Okay, I'll just close my eyes.
3: And this blind little boy was allowed to wander the world as freely as any sighted child. From the fifth grade
2: on, I walked to school almost every day. I had to cross major streets. I participated in extracurricular activities. I made my own breakfast. I made my own lunch.
1: I mean, were they considered outside the norm? Did they consider themselves outside
3: the norm? I don't think they noticed it much. I don't think they thought about it much. Particularly, Daniel didn't know that there was anything odd about the way he got around the world.
6: Uh, until Adam. My name is Adam Schabel. Excuse me for a second.
3: So, Elise, yeah. This is where the story takes a kind of complicated turn, because Adam is basically the first other blind person that Daniel ever encounters. They meet in the fifth grade when Adam suddenly enrolls in Daniel's school.
6: I will say I was a rather small fellow at the time. Hmm. When I was 11, 12, I was under 60 pounds.
3: And Daniel was not exactly welcoming.
6: He just wasn't a nice nice, uh, fellow.
2: Um,
3: Daniel said uh, that Adam completely unnerved him. Because of how incapable he was of getting around on his own.
2: Literally just running into walls. I mean, he would just walk along and his forehead would connect with a wall. And we'd be on the other side of that wall and we would say, okay, that's Adam. He's coming kind of thing.
3: Is that true? Was it like, was it that bad? Yeah. Adam says he had simply never needed to get around on his own before.
6: I went to the school for the blind from age five to age seven.
3: And there he was taken around on someone's arm almost all the time. In the lunchroom, people brought him his food. They helped him carry his books.
6: I don't know why people did things for me. They just did.
3: And Daniel was baffled by Adam.
2: At the time, I had not really conceptualized blindness in that way for myself. And I, did, I just didn't understand it.
4: He'd come home to his mom mystified. He'd say, Adam can't do anything on his own.
6: If I got lost, I used to get terrified. Why? I just, I didn't feel safe. Why? And then what happened
3: is that the kids at school started to mix up Daniel and Adam.
2: People started just lumping us together
3: Hmm. as,
2: you know, the blind kids. We were the same age.
3: You were the blind boys.
2: Yeah. They'd mix up our names, and I didn't like that at all.
3: And so almost to prove his... Distinction from Adam.
2: I did the things that kids will do in situations like that. What did you do? Um,
4: He made fun of Adam. He started bullying him. I
6: wondered if there was something
3: I had done. He'd tease him in front of other kids. I was pretty brutal. And he even beat him
6: up a few times.
2: Yeah. And that, in my aggressive little mind, was the thing that set me apart.
6: I wanted to be his friend. So then what happened?
2: Um, Time moved on.
3: Adam and Daniel went to different schools, and Daniel just tried his best to forget this kid so like him who couldn't get around in the world.
6: And um, we just just lost track of each each other.
3: Daniel goes off to college, doesn't really associate himself with the blind community. His plan is to work with at-risk kids. And then one day... He happens to pick up this book.
7: The title is The Making of Blind Men. The Making
2: of Blind Men by Robert Scott. I go by Bob. You can spell that either
7: way.
3: All right. This is the book's author, Bob Scott, a former professor of sociology at Princeton. And inside this book was the idea that would change Daniel's life. An idea that when you first hear it, sounds kind of out there. That blindness is a social construction.
1: Wait, was Bob saying that people are not physically blind? Kind of. But let me just tell you how he gets there. Okay. 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 So fresh out of grad school, Bob got this job
3: to conduct a huge multi-year-long survey to see how effective blindness organizations were at helping the blind. Yep. And so he begins interviewing hundreds of blind people, goes out on hundreds of site visits.
7: Basically gathering information in any way I could imagine that I could get it.
3: And then one day, many months into the process, he had
7: what might be called an aha moment.
3: He was out walking in a snowstorm in New York City when he happened to see
7: a blind beggar asking for money, standing on the corner at Bloomingdale's. And he thought, hey, someone
3: else to interview for my survey.
7: I said, would you allow me to buy some of your time? And I gave him, I don't know, $25 or something like that. We went in and sat down at a restaurant and I said,
3: tell me your story. Turns out the man had worked at a paint factory until a few years before when an accident there left him blind. And the people at the factory really liked the guy. So they said, look, why don't you go to an organization for the blind, get some training and then come back and work for us? So the guy said, great. He went to an organization for the blind. He said, I've got this job all lined up. Can you just help me with a few basic things? And the blindness organization said, no.
7: Oh, no, you can't do that. Blind people can't do those things. Uh, What we're going to do is put you through a program of rehabilitation and then move you along to our sheltered workshop that manufactures mops and brooms.
3: And Bob said there was one sentence in that response that jumped out at him.
7: Blind people can't
3: do those things. And he began to wonder wait, is that true? Could this guy really not work in a paint factory? Because over the course of his research, he'd seen blind people that could do all sorts of things. And the more that Bob looked around, he started to see that message. Blind people can't do those things. Being communicated to the blind people by the blind organizations that serve them. Not necessarily always as explicitly as in the case of the paint guy. Like how else then? Well, take the fact that at that time of the almost 20,000 blind kids that were in America, two thirds of them were being kept on the sidelines in gym class. Play tag, run around on your own. Blind people can't do those things. And then there was the organization's insistence that adult blind people get help getting around.
7: They are picked up at their homes, they're driven there, they're met at the sidewalk, walked into the agency, escorted to wherever they're going. Everything is being done for them.
3: And even though all this was intended to help, Bob began to wonder if maybe, just maybe, the organization's low expectations for what blind people could do Was in some way actually limiting the blind people that those organizations sought to help.
7: What I came to realize is that how they functioned was a process of learning. It was not imposed on them entirely by the fact that they couldn't see.
1: Hey, Lulu. Yeah, Elise. So is Bob saying that blindness is mostly in our head, that blind people can actually do everything that sighted people can do? Because my dad is blind. And he is very, very limited in what he can do. And I, and I got to say, I don't feel like the obstacles that he faces are obstacles that he wouldn't face if he just thought differently about his blindness. Well, Bob is pretty hardcore about this. I think he
3: would say that with enough time, your dad actually could do a lot more. Because he thinks the only real absolute physical limitation of blindness is about an inability to perceive things in the distance.
7: Exactly. Anything that I can't reach out and touch.
3: But you can compensate for everything else. And Elise? Uh Uh-huh? Bob wasn't actually the first person to come up with this idea. Blind people were. A group called the National Federation of the Blind has for a long time advocated this kind of idea. This is a group formed by blind people for blind people, and they think that the physical condition of blindness...
7: It doesn't explain nearly as much as people believe it explains.
1: So if you buy this logic, people who are blind, like, the only thing that's standing between them and walking around the world, like Daniel does, is our beliefs. Yeah. You know, that sounds totally crazy,
3: and that is exactly what he's saying. Which brings us back to Daniel. Daniel reads this book, and he starts thinking about
6: Adam. If I got lost, I used to get terrified.
3: You know, maybe it wasn't that Adam was this weirdo, tentative kid, but that he was a very typical product
1: of a system. You mean like the system taught Adam that he would have trouble moving around? Yeah. I mean, he was led around school. He
3: was, Mm -hmm. people brought him his food.
6: I don't know why people did things for me. They just did.
3: And when Daniel looked at the world around him, he thought, you know, a lot has changed, but a lot is frighteningly similar. From then till today, things are similar? Yeah. 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 I called around to over a dozen blindness organizations all over the country.
8: My name is Daniel Norris, Supervisor of Adult Services for the Vermont Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired.
3: And supervisor after supervisor told me that what Bob Scott saw is still very much alive today. In what way? So most children who are blind in America don't actually go to schools for the blind anymore. Right. Thanks to the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, most blind kids stay in their local public schools, which is great. But on those public school grounds, says Norris, There
8: is a lot of pressure to keep a a child safe, and especially in a litigious society.
3: So many of the blind students are still placed with a paraeducator, which can be good... But sometimes...
8: Those paraeducators can end up doing the work for the kid and... Like Adam. When you lighten someone's load, you don't allow them to expand.
3: I talked to mothers whose blind kids were pulled off of playground equipment. And perhaps the most chilling thing is the fact that most blind kids will intuitively start clicking or snapping or stamping to test out their environment with sound. But they are so often discouraged. It's not socially acceptable, is what they would say. That they never get the chance to develop their skill to the level Daniel did.
8: Um, So how, how are we doing as a nation? We have not taught independence.
3: He points out that in America, majority of blind people are unemployed. And while that could be for a lot of reasons, Norris thinks that's on us.
2: What we are doing is we are creating slaves to others' thinking.
3: That's Daniel Kish again.
2: Slaves to others' perception. Slaves to what others think they should be doing and somehow were comfortable with that.
3: And so though he had never wanted to work in the profession of blindness, in fact, he had wanted to get as far away from it as he could, Daniel Kish decided he sort of had no choice.
2: It sucked me in kind of kicking and screaming.
3: He could see what was happening and he held in his tongue (laughs) a way out. So he decided that he would dedicate his life to trying to liberate blind children. Kind of like Batman. Exactamundo fighting for good in the world in a kind of vigilante way because actually the way that you go about liberating a blind child from the constraining forces of culture, it can get kind of ugly.
0: Coming up, The Dark Knight Rises. Lulu and Elise are back in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we have a story from a brand new radio show and podcast called Invisibilia. It's from NPR News. Science reporters Elise Spiegel and Lulu Miller are the hosts, and they're here today talking about how profoundly other people's expectations can affect us, and about a blind man named Daniel Kish. Anyway, again, here's Elise.
1: So when last we met Daniel, he had decided that he was going to become a kind of real life Batman who. Would save people who were blind from the low expectations of their culture. But before we keep going, I should probably point out that lots of blind people don't necessarily want him as their savior. A bunch of them told us, basically, clicks, schmecks
2: uh, because i get I get along just uh, fine without without doing that with clicking noise or whatever he calls it with.
1: This is Bob Ringwald, a musician in California. He says he's got a cane. Works great. He does everything he wants.
2: You know, when I wanted to learn to play guitar, I did. And uh, done a lot of climbing around on my roof and climbing up poles and anything I wanted to do, I did.
1: (laughs) Now, Bob Ringwald, in fact, all of the blind people that we spoke to for this story, agreed with Daniel that low expectations hold blind people back. But that didn't necessarily mean that they wanted to echolocate. For example, when Bob Ringwald was seven in School for the Blind back in the 50s, he knew some kids who clicked and said they just seemed a little weird.
2: I really didn't want to go
4: through life clicking all the time. A lot of people think blind people are strange. So, uh, you know, I didn't want to be any stranger
7: than I already was. (laughs) A lot of instructors don't like people to do that because it does look funny.
1: Eric Woods is also blind and a retired mobility instructor in Colorado.
7: And it's socially unacceptable. Not unacceptable, but it's socially different. And so it has been discouraged. I've heard plenty of people discourage it.
1: And Daniel knew this. He knew what he was up against. So, Lulu, what did Daniel do? Well, he starts up a nonprofit. <laughs> As you
3: do. A nonprofit that will teach people how to echolocate. Yes. This is one of his early instructional videos. It's now 2001. And since his aim is nothing short of liberation, Uh he calls it World Access for the Blind. Access for the Blind. Now, the only little problem that he runs into is that at that time, a blind person teaching another blind person how to get around is basically unheard
2: of. The blind cannot lead the blind. It's right out of the Bible. It's fundamental to our culture.
3: In fact, until the mid-90s?
2: There was no certification for blind people to train other blind people. Wow. Blind people
7: can't do
3: those things. So this is actually when the bike trick became big. Like Though he sort of hates, look at the blind man ride a bike, he realized that could get him attention. So he starts going on all these TV shows with his trick.:
2: You know, and my segment was between something about vampires and <laughs> some other thing about faith healing or whatever.:
3: And on these TV appearances, he try to send some sort of signal to blind kids who might be watching, who might be able to contact him.: Dan, can anyone learn this?
2: Echolocation is a skill, uh, piano playing, for example. Uh, Some people may be more talented than others, but I think that anyone could learn it.
3: And it worked. Yep. Slowly but surely, families started contacting him, which meant that Daniel was now faced with a question. Could he actually undo the damage of low expectations? And this is where things begin to get a little morally complicated.
2: The example I'm about to give is an example that took place about 10 years ago.
3: Daniel told me about going out to teach one of his first students ever, a little 10-year-old boy. He
2: lives on an apple orchard.
3: Out in Washington state.
2: I come out and basically what I see is a boy who won't leave his house.
3: And so Daniel's idea was to get him to climb a tree.
2: They live on an orchard full of trees, for goodness sakes.
3: But the kid won't budge. So to get him out the door, Daniel takes away all his toys.
2: Our, Our purpose was to kind of simulate the world that he was choosing for himself. So this is what life will have in store for you. Basically nothing, okay, nothing.
3: And after about a week, the kid finally agrees to go climb a freaking tree. And he gets up onto the first branch and the second branch and then says, okay.
2: I give up, I give up. Yeah, but you know what, giving up isn't an option. You can decide never to climb a tree for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. but we are going to climb this one. Yeah, And I said, you can go up, you cannot go down. And he just had a fit, literally screaming himself hoarse. I mean, he actually jumped at one point, like he actually leapt off the tree. He was in such a frenzy.
3: Oh my God,
1: Lulu. And what does Daniel do?
3: Well, he catches him, he's right below him Mm -hmm. and he just says, no.
2: You can go up, you cannot go down.
3: And they stay in this tree, battling it out.
2: Inch by inch by... It took three hours to get up a 60-foot tree.
3: But by the end, the kid was doing Doing it it himself. himself.
2: He started finding his own footholds, finding his own handholds.
3: And Daniel thinks this training and how the parents then took it on too changed the boy's life.
2: By the age of 13, he was out of his shell. He had joined Boy Scouts. Um, That is... In no way where he was headed.
1: Hmm. That is just crazy, though, that story on some level. I I don't know if that kind of bullying is even allowed in America anymore, you know? Yeah. And most schools for the blind have been reluctant to hire
3: him because of liability issues. They're scared it'll be too dangerous for their students. I bet. But see, Daniel would say that attitude, Elise, is part of the problem. So what are a few tears, huh? A few scratches. He has this line he always says.
2: Running into a pole is a drag, but never being allowed to run into a pole is a disaster.
3: He worries that when you prevent a kid from, say, running into a pole, what you end up preventing them from is the kind of experience that allow for, and this gets me back to that crazy-sounding clave he made at the beginning of the show. Actual sight.
2: If our culture recognized the capacity of blind people to see, then more blind people would learn to see. It's actually, it's pretty simple and straightforward.
3: Daniel thinks this because, well, he says he sees.
2: I definitely would say that I experience images, that I have images. And
3: he isn't talking metaphorically here.
2: They are images of spatial character and depth that have a lot of the same qualities that, that a person who sees would see.
3: Hello. Hi. Hi. This is Laura Thaler, a German neuroscientist at Durham University in the UK. And Laura knows a lot about sight. She studies vision in the brain, literally how the images we see are constructed. It sounds simple, but the image is actually a complex construct. Now, several years ago, Lore happened across a video of Daniel. Okay, so we
2: had a little string of park vehicles there. And as she there, watched the way that he so side...
3: easily moved through space, she found herself wondering, was there any way that Daniel's brain was indeed constructing images? It was so akin to vision, really. Okay, so you may know this already, but Lore reminded me that an image, even though it feels like it's out there in the world in front of your eyes, actually exists... Behind the eyes. the image, it's something that your mind constructs. In a part of your brain called the visual cortex. So, Lore brought Daniel and a few other people who can echolocate into her lab. Mm -hmm. And she took recordings of them while they clicked at different objects in space. A car. A lamppost. These are her actual recordings. A salad bowl. A salad bowl in motion. How do you get a salad bowl in motion? You stand behind the person with a salad bowl on a fishing pole, and you slowly wave it. Right. And the microphones were actually in their ears. So we recorded what they heard exactly. Oh, that's neat. And then she played the recordings back to them, one object at a time, while they were lying down in fMRI machines so she could watch how their brains responded. Salad bowl. Salad bowl in motion. And then she compared those readings to what salad bowl in motion. And then in a second study, she compared those readings to what happens in the brains of sighted people looking at the same kinds of things. Salad bowl, salad bowl in motion. Very clever, very clever. Yep. And what she found is that even though for decades scientists assumed that the visual cortex goes dark when you are blind, Daniels was lighting up like a disco ball.
2: Yeah, so that was really very impressive.
3: And the way in which it was lighting up. This is really cool. So it turns out that there are all these different parts of the brain involved in vision. So there's an area that's specifically dedicated to processing motion, and that's way over here behind the ears. And then there are completely different areas for shape, for texture. Lightness. So how bright is something? And in Daniel's brain, many of these areas were lighting up color and brightness, no action there. But motion? When they did that salad bowl and motion test? The motion area behind the ears started pumping with blood flow. Very vigorously. And orientation turns out there's sort of a grid for orientation in the brain. Like a whole bunch of little pixels in a grid. And she could watch as the salad bowl moved across it. It was really robust or highly significant. All right, Ms. Spiegel, so I know that sometimes neurology and neuroscience...
1: Goes over my head.
3: Or just sounds like a foreign language that you're not particularly interested <laughs> in speaking. Uh-huh. But...
1: Just lay on the plane for me. Okay. What does this mean?
3: What this work suggests... Uh-huh. ...is that you may not actually need eyes to see. I kind of feel like we got to shout it from
1: the rooftops. Come on. Oh my God. Ah, Okay.
3: You might not need eyes to see! And Laura is by no means the only person seeing this result. The idea first started coming up in the mid-90s, when a lab at Harvard saw that visual areas of the brain can be activated by sound and touch.
1: Do I have to do it? Uh Uh-huh. You might not need eyes to see!
3: And since then, dozens of labs have been looking into just how nuanced and rich that visual imagery may be. So there's a guy at Berkeley, Santani Tang, who's been trying to determine the acuity of these images. You know, like an eye test. how close to 2020 are they? Uh-huh. And what he's found is that their 75% localization thresholds indicated spatial acuity as fine as 1.5 degrees of the subtended angle. No! It's true. I'll put it another way. <laughs> he thinks their world looks a lot like your peripheral vision. So imagine that you're texting on your cell phone, walking down the street. Okay, you're looking at that screen. Now, what does the street look like to you? You know, you can see people coming at you. You can see cars, you can see trees, but you couldn't read a sign. That, he thinks, is Daniel's world.
2: I, I can honestly, honestly say that I do not feel blind.
1: So what does Laura say about this? Does she think that the echolocators are actually seeing? Well, that's <laughs> almost
3: philosophical, isn't it? Laura asks the only people on Earth who can know, people who used to see, you know, is what they're experiencing comparable? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is Brian Bushway, who you met briefly at the top of the show. So step right up.
5: I became totally blind at the age of 14.
3: But once he learned echolocation, just like that. The world around him, although blurrier and colorless,
1: appeared again.
5: The things are real. I mean it's it's as real as looking at
1: it. Wait, wait, wait. so Lulu, does every blind person have this? No.
3: And that's the thing. Lore has looked at the brains of people who do not echolocate. And though there's definitely some activity in the visual cortex, it's simply not as active. Which brings me back to Daniel's teaching methods. The thing about echolocation is, yes, you can learn it when you get older, but it gets so much harder with age. Which is why Daniel doesn't give a damn about making a little kid cry. Because he thinks at the other end of those tears is sight.
2: Okay, off we go.
3: So I finally got to see one of these training sessions in action. We went to see a five-year-old boy named Nathan Nip. Okay, so
2: what we'll do then is we'll ask Nathan's mom about parks or some place that he doesn't know.
3: Brian's with us too, actually. He's now one of Daniel's deputy teachers.
2: He can click.
3: And part of the goal that day was to get Nathan out of his comfort zone. But the bigger part, and really what is often this other major part of what Daniel is trying to teach is to get the people around Nathan to back off.
7: Hello. Hi. So
3: we go into the house.
7: I am five and a half, and Ashton's two.
2: Daniel
3: asks to hear Nathan's clicks. You
2: have a nice smiley click.
3: And then we head out to a faraway park. What do you, where are we? What do you think we're at? At the field. At the field. Ding, ding, ding. It's a sports field flanked by a really busy road. Nathan? 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 And the idea is to make Nathan find his way around this park by himself. So,
5: we want to use our our clicks, and we're going to explore what's around here in this park. Let's see if we can find anything, okay?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, he finds a soccer net. Yeah? He tries to find a fence at one side of the park. Well,
2: you're yeah, we're in the bushes.
3: But gets a little turned around. Come back toward Ethan me, stopped. Nathan. Come back toward me. And then it's time to find the edge of the road.
2: What, what noises do
5: we hear right now?
3: A cars? Cars. So Brian tells Nathan to walk toward those cars.
5: And we'll all follow behind you.
3: At this point, it's just so, me and the godmother and Brian.
5: Where's Ashton? He's over
3: there. Everyone else is on the other side of the park. Can we mm-hmm. go
5: to him? No.
3: Wow. Nathan is leading.
5: Can I hear you click? Very
3: and good. picture this. I mean, this is like a, a little five-year-old boy with a tiny white now. cane kind of tapping his way towards oncoming traffic. (laughs) Tapping his way toward oncoming traffic, which is a jarring sight. And the person closest to him is Brian, who is also blind.
5: Listen out in front of you, listen into the
3: distance. And he's getting closer and closer to the edge of the road. Four feet, three feet, and then, his godmother just shoots out and grabs him back. And Brian kind of noticeably flinched.
5: Let's all try to stay, like, more or less behind him.
3: Because while he completely understands why the godmother would reach out for Nathan, he said it is precisely that kind of moment that does the damage.
5: Often, decided people will jump in a half a second too soon, and they rob the blind student from that learning moment. And that just keeps happening over and over again. And I think so many blind people's lives that they never get that moment of what it is to really have that self-confidence, to trust your senses, to know, oh, if I do use my cam properly and I am listening attentively to information around me, I'll be okay.
3: I think part of the problem is that, you know, when we have eyes, we can see things coming from further away. The whole point is, like, when it's your cane and you're clicking, like, you you catch edges at what appears like the last moment.
5: We don't need to go any farther. Why? Why don't we need to go any further?
7: Because
5: there's cars. Yeah, so that means the street's here.
1: Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. What if you're a half second too late? Right. Because I think that probably a lot of parents... I mean, the thing that keeps them reaching out well before the half second before is kind of the specter of the half second after.
3: So you, I think you grabbed him yeah, there. Yeah. And yeah. what was that moment like? Well, this is exactly what Nathan's godmother brought up. It is hard. You know, she understands the dangers of a half second too early.
4: He has to learn to how
3: to make that judgment. But at the end of the day, she is far more concerned about the dangers of a half second too late. You don't really want to risk that. Which brings me to possibly the biggest thing that Daniel is up against in his quest to change expectations. Love.
8: You can't blame mom and dad for struggling and wanting to keep their child safe.
3: This is Dan Norris again from the blindness organization in Vermont. And when we asked him if a change like the one Daniel's hoping for, a massive change in expectations, could actually take place, One of the main obstacles he brought up was love.
8: It's very hard as a parent with a child who's visually impaired to let go.
3: Even when the expectations for that kid are high, he said love can get in the way.
8: Those parents, they want to keep their child safe. They want their child to not suffer. And that's very noble, but holds the kids back.
3: So in 10 years in the field, how many kids on bikes have you seen, blind kids on bikes?
8: Blind kids on bikes, I have seen about five.
1: That's actually pretty good. Yeah,
8: Yeah, I I think that we are seeing society begin to change.
3: But when he thinks about the sheer volume of love, brimming in every household, on every schoolyard and every street corner...
8: Are we going to get there anytime soon as a nation? Um, no, I don't think so.
3: And this gets us, finally, to what may have been Daniel's one true superpower.
2: What most people find to be the meaning of life absolutely creeps me out.
3: Daniel is 49 and has never been with a partner. And he finds the whole idea of physical intimacy unsettling. We had finally reached the end of our hike, the place Daniel wanted to take me.
2: Is this like awesome?
3: Yeah. It was a huge old oak tree, miles from civilization that Daniel said was one of his favorite spots on Earth. Okay. And so we climbed up it together. Let's see where I would go. 20 feet, 30 feet, maybe 40 feet.
1: one You're very high! Down.
3: And it was there in the branches that he told me he's never really been one for love. I was never
2: that interested in closeness as a kid. I, I wasn't really a lap sitter. I didn't like holding hands. I didn't really like hugs.
3: He even used to have nightmares about it.
2: You know, a child's mind will turn things into very ghoulish, ghastly uh deeply unsettling, spooky things.
3: Like what? Like what would be a nightmare about? There were two. In one, a hand chased after him.
2: And then the other thing were the plastic arms that want to sort of engulf and enfold and just kind of take you in to themselves.
3: He's not sure where this comes from. He wonders if it could have been the surgeries he had as a tiny boy. Or from the way his parents raised him. Or maybe he just always was that way. Who knows? And while he's not suggesting that you need this quality to become independent, when he looks back, he wonders if this may have been one of the things that protected him from the debilitating effects of low expectations. Because unlike the rest of us, when those arms reached out for him, he never once had any desire to fall back into them.
4: Everything that happens in your life has its effect. That's his mom again, Paulette. Has its effect.
3: And you don't think it's that Daniel became this way because he was in some way neglected or because it was too hard? Is there any part of you that thinks you went too far in terms of letting him be?
4: No. No. He's happy.
2: totally happy.
3: We sat there for a while, watching the afternoon slip away.
2: Listen to how quiet it is.
3: And suddenly I got that pang you get when you realize it's getting dark and you are far, far from civilization. And that was followed by another pang that it literally didn't matter because he'd be the one leading us out.
7: Hmm.
0: Louan Miller, Annalise Spiegel of Invisibilia, the new public radio program and podcast. Lots of public radio stations, hundreds of them, have picked up the show, so check your local station's website to see if they might be carrying it and when. Or to get the podcast, go to npr.org slash invisibilia. Our program was produced today by Sean Cole and myself with Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey Walzer, Candig, Nikki Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Brian Reed, Robin and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. NPR's Ann Gudenkoff is the editor of Invisibilia. She edited today's story. Production help today from J.P. Dukes and Simon Adler. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise is our office manager. Adrian Mathowitz runs our website. Elna Baker scouts stories for our show. Research help today from Christopher Switala. Music help from Damian Grafe. Special thanks today to Brent Bachman, Matt Martinez, Brendan Baker, Eric Newsom, Portia Robertson Migus, Madalika Sika, Joe Shapiro, Colin Dwyer, and Juliana Dougherty. Our website, ThisAmericanLife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. He says, sure, yes, it's true. He was found wearing a bathing suit, standing out in the middle of the street, in the middle of winter, in the middle of night, holding a quarter million dollars in cash that was not his.
4: That can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone.
0: I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.